This is On Call with Dr. Dave, and today on call we have Chesley. So Chesley, you are an EMT, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Okay. Yeah, like you said, my name is Chesley. I am, I've been an EMT for about almost nine years now. Um, half that time was in the Midwest where I, where I first started and then uh, had the opportunity to move back closer to home, back to Idaho, where I grew up for job purposes and volunteer on my local service in uh, the small community I live now. I am a an EMS pilot for a company called Classic Air Medical. Uh, I fly the helicopter in and out with a, a crew of a nurse and a medic. We go to all sorts of scenes from interfacility transfers to scene calls on the freeway to search and rescue calls. You name it, the helicopters needed were there. Uh, so it's pretty fun and exciting. Get to see a lot of different things. Well, I can tell you the coolest I've ever felt in medicine was running up to the helicopter to take a patient off. I don't, I don't ever do that. It was just one time on a rotation. They're like, Hey, there's a helicopter landing. You go get the patient. So running to that helicopter to unload that patient made me feel like the biggest badass in medicine ever. <laughs> and you're, and you're the guy flying the plane. So, I mean, that, that must feel pretty cool. <laughs> it is pretty cool. We like to joke around that uh, aviators are included with the license. Um, you can't, you can't fly without them, but it's very, very rewarding. So it's, it's fun because I get to, uh, I've run for so long on the ground. I know the ground side of it, but then now I get to see the flip side, right? That we're the first in the first out in some cases. And I've got the flip side. Now I'm a glorified Uber driver, but it's so, <laughs> so important that we're there for, you know, whatever reason. Now, are a lot of your pickups and a lot of your flights, are they picking people up from a hospital, transporting to a larger hospital? Or are you going to the scene of the accident to pick people up initially from their trauma? It's about somewhere between a, like a 70-30 split. Most of them mm -hmm. are inner facilities where we're going into a physical hospital that uh, it's these small communities that need a higher level of care. Uh, we'll fly in with the crew and we're basically a mobile ICU unit. We can take that patient, give them that care till we can get them to that higher level, whatever they need, you know, a cardio cath lab or a burn unit or whatever the case may be. Then the scene calls would be the other side of that where um, we have a, a handshake agreement with a lot of the sheriff's offices and the, the dispatch units where we'll have an auto launch procedure where if there's a car accident, they'll just launch us right away. So we'll get in the air, we'll get going. And then uh, police or even EMTs will show up and be like, you know what, we don't need the helicopter and they can call us off. But uh, that way we're not losing any ground if, if we're actually needed to save on time. Yeah, that's nice. I didn't know they did that. I thought they just waited until they definitely needed you. But that's amazing that they do that. Just every minute counts. Yeah, the uh, the area that I work in, um, it's it's surprising, but we're actually pretty saturated with air assets. And so one of the ways we compete is we say, look, you know, we want to get there um, and offer care as quickly as possible. So this is a procedure that we're willing to implement to to get to the patient as quick as possible to help that person. And so then they can push that button or give us a call. And then the, our dispatch unit will say, oh, the helicopter is is 20 minutes out, right? Rather than now we're calling to find out if the helicopter can go. Hold on, let me call you right back. Okay, now they can go. And it's been, you know, a 10 or a 20 minute gap. And that, that 20 minutes has turned into 40 minutes now. Yeah, that's amazing because I think you probably lose a little bit of money and fuel cost and time, like getting the plane or the, the helicopter in the air and then coming back down. But like I said, every minute matters. So it's, it's nice you guys get in the air. Yeah. It's better patient care. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It just, it's, 
And then when you think back as your time as an EMT, what are the stories that stick out to you? <laughs> oh, so many to choose from. The one that that I I tell a lot of people that uh, are talking about becoming an EMT was probably my very first call I ever went on. When in the the community that I lived in at the time, I actually was a good friend of mine came and said, "Have you ever in uh, Have you ever been interested in becoming an EMT?" And I actually had. I'd been thinking about it for a while. Small community I grew up in, I uh, was familiar with a lot of the volunteers at the time. I said, you know what? That's something I'd be happy to do. And they said, we'll train you. We'll give you all the schooling you need to do. Um, and then we just ask for a certain commitment of your time. So that's fantastic. So they immediately put me on the ambulance right away as a third rider or a fourth rider, as some units call, you know, brand new, ready to go gung-ho guy. And we got called for a welfare check in the middle of the county, out in the middle of nowhere. A neighbor had, was used to seeing the, his little old lady neighbor, you know, and hadn't seen her for a long time. And so called the, the county deputies to do a welfare check. And we got called and said she'd fallen. She needed help. And uh, I just remember being so excited. OK, I got to do my assessments. I got to take my bag, you know, ready to go. And and the two gentlemen I was with at the time, you know, they're just sitting up there with big grins on their face. And they said, OK, we'll we'll let you go do your thing. And I remember pulling up this long dirt driveway and uh, the deputy had come out of the house and out of the whole experience, the one thing that I remember the most is the top of his lip was glistening, kind of reflecting in the sunlight. And I didn't think much of it. And he's like, she's in, you got to go in the door. You got to, she's in the back of the house. You need to go check her out. And I said, okay, I'll grab the gurney. He goes, you're not going to get the gurney in there. She's got a lot of stuff in between you and where she's at. And uh, the two guys in the front looked at each other and said, you go do your assessment. We'll be in. We'll figure something out. And, you know, not even thinking about it, I went running in there, guns blazing, ready to go. And the lady was uh, was a level hoarder I've never seen before. <laughs> uh, just stuff stacked everywhere. And uh, the lady, dementia must have set in at some point because she had fallen. She was not in her right mind. Um, and she was in the back of the house surrounded by garbage and filth. I mean, it was, it was, it was very sad to see, but she was chipper and happy to see me. She wanted to know my name and what I did for a living. <laughs> and the smell was awful. I mean, just horrible. And as, as a brand new person who's never experienced it, right. The smells are what, what bring back the vivid memories. And I just remember running in there, got ready to go. And then about losing my lunch, just like, Oh, okay. And you got to just put on a brave face with it. Okay. Yep. All right. I'm going to do my assessment. We ended up uh, getting her out of the house and uh, taking her in uh, to the hospital uh, to get better care. And the two guys in the front said, just remember, you know, the new guy always gets the assessment and uh, you might want to throw away your shoes at the end of that. <laughs> uh, happy, happy outcome, but, uh, but definitely mm -hmm. one that I'll never forget. Now, you mentioned the guy coming out of the house, his upper lip was glistening. Did he put a little bit of something under there to like mask the smell? Yeah. The Vicks VapoRub. Yeah. With the mentholated kind. I remember coming out and he was just smiling ear to ear and he's like, would you like some? He held the tub up for me. <laughs> oh, that's what that's for. That's good to know. <laughs> There's some strong smelling kind of solvents and glues that we would sometimes put inside of our masks when we were going to work on an infected abdomen or a ruptured appendicitis. When we knew it was going to be a really difficult case to get through with the smell, we'd always put a little something on the inside of our mask so we'd, that would block out, just kind of just burn those nasal passageways so you couldn't smell the odor. 
Oh, yeah. Well, and you don't think about it, but it gets 10 times worse when you put them in an enclosed tiny space like a helicopter, right? Oh, Especially gee. in the middle of the summer, that sun's coming through there and it just gets kind of hot. And uh, I, I turn on like my defroster. So the wind, all the air is blowing <laughs> past them right to the back crew. And I just sit back there grinning. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Nothing like a little light hazing, though, sending the new guy in to do the assessment there. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> There was another call that we had gone on um, that was uh, it was pretty pretty eye opening. When when you're the first responder in, you know that's when you're seeing people at their best and their worst. Mm-hmm. And it's it's pretty one of my favorite things to do in the entire world is to people watch, right? You know, go to a a busy restaurant or to an airport or a bus station. You just can sit back and you can watch people and you kind of wonder about their individual lives and what brought them to that specific point. And as a first responder, you get to see this at at its maximum, right? It's best and it's worst case. So we got called to an individual who wasn't feeling well. Well, it had turned out that he um, had, had used some pretty intense recreational drugs and uh, we got him, you know, at his high point and happy and running. He was running from us. He was running from the deputies and they were able to kind of corral him and, and contain him. And uh, my partners with me went up and he had he had Narcan. We Narcan the guy and he went from his most happiest point in his life to his worst and his angriest. And uh, he came out of that so angry that he started swinging at both of us. And at that point, you know, the scene's not safe. Well, you know, the deputy had to step in and, and uh, corral the guy, but it, it was just amazing to see how, how quickly people can change right from, from what they perceive as the best point in their life to all of a sudden now it's the worst. And he was angry at us. Not the fact that we had taken away his high. Well, that was part of it, but um, how much money we had just cost him. <laughs> Understandable. Yeah. <laughs> I from, get it. I get from, it. You from, know, from what I've heard from patients, drugs aren't cheap. No, no. I can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> that's fun. Now that, that's taken me a little off track, but it just like reminded me of something that I saw in the hospital one time. We had a patient that was inpatient for about two weeks and he was just acting really, really strange. So we just said, you know what, let's do a drug test on him to see if like maybe he snuck something in, maybe he took something. And he tests positive for cocaine. And we say, you've been in the hospital for two weeks. Where are you getting this cocaine? Is our family members bringing it in? He's like, no, I just ordered it with breakfast. I say, what? So some enterprising drug dealer in the community had gone to, and, and he infiltrated the hospital and got a lot of his own people working the food delivery system. And so these patients in the hospital would then just tell the person delivering their breakfast if they wanted to order any drugs, and then they would be in there in the afternoon or evening to deliver the drugs with their food plates. So watch out for that as well. If somebody's acting strange wow. in the hospital, don't just assume that they haven't had anything for a while. They, you know, friends, family, or enterprising drug dealers might be getting them drugs inside the hospital. So you always gotta be on the lookout for uh, substance abuse. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I appreciate the hustle. That's pretty <laughs> ingenious. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm afraid that you even put it on the podcast because I'm afraid I might give somebody an idea. But I mean, obviously, people, people are already doing it. I mean, there, I, mean it, it's out there. I didn't come up with it. Nope. So. <laughs> right. Million years. What's the what's kind of the craziest like trauma that you just just you had to fly out to just where you're just like, I can't believe this is what's happening right now. 
One of the worst traumas I think that I'd ever been on, uh, we got called to uh, a scene call off the interstate. We flew in and it was really confusing because at first it was called an MVA, a uh, motor vehicle accident, and then it was a, a pedestrian versus vehicle, which on the freeway you don't hear very often, right? You know, pedestrians are not supposed to be on the freeway. But uh, so we flew out and they had the entire fr- uh, the entire lane of the freeway shut down like you could see by the time we were there which i mean i think we were only 10 to 15 minutes behind the actual accident itself but there was miles of cars already backed up it was a pretty popular interstate uh but when we had landed there was there was an individual and she had severe traumatic uh injuries to both of her legs and it and I'm trying to remember the exact story of exactly what happened, but it was something along the lines of she had been in a, in a violent relationship with her significant other and they were traveling together and they had been fighting. And at some point she just made the decision, you know, this isn't worth it. And she opened the door and jumped out. So when on the we on the interstate traveling down the road at probably 80 mile an hour. So by the time that we'd got to her, there had been several units of blood given, you know, several tourniquets in use at that point. And we, we had come and you don't think about it as, as a helicopter, especially in as a small space, we try to, to stabilize as best we can on the ground. Right. We, we do not want to put an active code into the helicopter because, because there's actually not as much room in there to work an active code as you would think. So we try to do everything on the ground beforehand, stabilize, you know, bring levels down, whatever the case may be. And this person was just very difficult. And the only thing we could do is we're like, we need to get her to the hospital. She needs uh, severe care. But we did not have, like, to contain the mess. That was the biggest thing. Like, we can throw her in here, but it's going to make a mess all over our equipment everything. So what we ended up doing is there was an enterprising uh, deputy. He's like, well, I've got a body bag. We could slide her in, you know, to kind of hold things. And and we just kind of tacoed it around her um, and slide it in there. And if you can think about like a Ford Escort, just how tiny that little car is, right? And you take out the the passenger side seat, and now all of a sudden I've got a patient next to me. And that's how a helicopter is set up. So you've got two med crew behind the head of the patient, and they're slid right in in front right next to me. So every now and then they'd reach over, they're like, can you see spurting blood out of, out of the artery? You know, and I'd look over. Uh, yeah, and so they'd have to lay her completely fat, flat, climb over her to retighten. Uh, a tourniquet in the in the five minute flight from the freeway back to the hospital, um, and I remember eh, with a helicopter you've got a lot of moving parts, right? Um, and safety is first and foremost. So we try not to do what's called a hot offload or a hot load at that point. So many moving parts with a lot of people. We like to come in completely shut down. Then we'll say, okay, approach the helicopter. We'll mm-hmm. unload and go. But in a case like this, man, you got to do what you got to do. And we train regularly with the security staff, with search and rescue crews, with law enforcement, we, we encourage it. Hey, call us up. We'll do these hot load trainings with you. And if there's ever this emergency, as we got back to the hospital, they had a trauma team waiting on the helipad for us. Um, I mean, 20 people ready to go, you know, yanked her out away they went. And it was, it was a very oiled machine at that point. It was really incredible to see. And, and she survived. Uh, they were able to contain the blood, give her more blood, uh, and and uh, help her. And then they ended up putting her into some sort of a counseling uh, situation where she was able to get out of the situation she was in and, and fully recover. Well, wow, to an extent. Amazing. 
And it just shows you the training that matters in every level. You guys, the people first on the scene to stabilize that patient, you guys to fly the helicopter, to get her to the hospital, even training on how to unload and load quickly was needed in that moment. So I just don't, I don't think most people in the general public realize how much practice there is in medicine. We run codes, we practice codes, taking people on and off the helicopter. We put a lot of thought and effort into it. And in situations that where it really matters, you, you saved your life. Absolutely. I mean, you think about it and it's that training that gets you to that point, right? We always say slow is smooth and smooth is fast. You don't need to run as fast as you can, but you need to be think through your process so that you can do it properly. So you're volunteer EMT right now. That's correct. I understand. So how many hours a week do you volunteer? So I, I'll usually put my schedule in a month and ahead in advance, and I'll usually pick up anywhere from four to 10 shifts a month on top of my regular, my regular job of flying wow. in a small community. Yeah, and the volunteer EMT stuff, that's in a standard ambulance going on the ground? Correct. It's so interesting. When I was a kid, that we had a volunteer fire department. We had a lot of it was a lot of our EMS kind of stuff was volunteer based. And I remember my friend's dad's being volunteer firemen getting called on these or sleeping at the fire station at night and thought of, well, what if there weren't people willing to do that? We would be in big trouble, big, big oh, trouble. Yeah. You know, so especially in a rural community that you live in now, just how much the people depend upon the willingness to volunteer is, is amazing to me. I to do that. And I think it's somewhat of a double-edged sword in smaller communities. If you really think about it, because these guys are not only donating their time and willing to come in, but they're going to pick up their friends and family and neighbors. Uh, I mean, the town I live in is like 2,500 people, right? It's not every call I go on. I know that person in some way, shape or form, you know, depending on how close that is that can really hit you hard. I mean, you go work a severe, uh, severe cardiac case, right. And you're, you've been thumping on somebody for, for 20 minutes and it could be your neighbor, somebody that you have grown up with that, you know, them on a personal level and it really hits you kind of hard. It's, it's pretty wild. And on the, on the helicopter side of it, we actually fly into the same community I live in. So when I get calls out of our town, it's like, all right, what am I coming into? What is the severity of this and how can I help? And I've actually, it's been, it's been really uh, rewarding because there have been times where I have flown in. Uh, I walk into the ER for whatever the case is and I know the person and they immediately stop. They look up at me. They know me on a personal level and they immediately relax. Say, okay, it's all going to be fine. I know him. He'll take care of me. It's no longer that fear is gone, right? The unknown is no longer there. It this was only maybe four months ago. We got a car, uh, a call on the helicopter side for a uh, a pedestrian versus vehicle, and I and we'd been having really nasty weather the whole week. This was like in ended in November, maybe first part of December. So on the flight side, it's very finicky with the weather. Right, we're constantly looking at it, seeing what it's doing, how is it going to, sh- what form it's going to take. And that'll decide whether we can take a call. And there are times where it's just like nasty outside. We cannot make it to that point. And we have to straight up say, we're really sorry, but we can't make it. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the safety of the team is not worth it. And that particular day, I was on a night shift 
uh, I remember driving into work thinking, you know what? It's clear enough. I could take a flight, um, which, which is, is very beneficial, right? You kind of drive your, your path beforehand saying, you know what? I can do it. I can do it. And I hadn't been to work more than an hour and that call came in and, and there was zero information on the call at first. They just said, we need you here. Uh, the ambulance is still en route to the patient to figure out what's going on. We'll give you updates. So we launched and we got going and I was, I wasn't even to the town yet. And I was getting a call on my personal cell phone from somebody, um, which was very strange. And I answered the phone call and they said, are you flying today? And I said, yes. And they said, okay, I'll see you at the hospital. And they hung up. I was like, what is going on now? So now I, now I'm emotionally invested too, which on the flight side can be, can be dangerous, right? I don't want to make a decision emotionally that's going to jeopardize the safety of my team. So I try to have a clear head and not, I try to make the decision before I know what's going on, say, yep, we can make this safely. Okay. Now what's the nature of the call? Okay. We can do this. So as we came in, it ended up being a, a close family member of my, of mine and the family was all there. They immediately went from like being scared to level 10 right now down to a level four. Okay. We're calm. We're clear. What's your recommendation? I said, let's go here. It's the best pediatric hospital in the area. We'll fly him there. He'll be taken care of. This individual happened to be a youth at the time that had got uh, sideswiped by a truck and, uh, was in severe pain, but we were able to manage it, stabilize them on the ground, reload them into the helicopter. And then we took them to a pediatric hospital to take care of and, uh, fully recovered at this point. But the fact that I had known them, me walking in the door brought a level of peace to them, which, which was very rewarding in itself because it made me feel good knowing that I did more than just fly the helicopter at that point. Right. I was not doing any personal care, but I could still help in my own little way. Yeah, I think that's been something that's missing from modern medicine in most cities and most situations is that disconnect between the healthcare provider and the patient. A lot of times we don't know these people. I've talked to numerous people in ICU situations and hospital situations. And one of the things they always talk about is, I wonder how that person's doing now. These, these meaningful interactions, these, these intense moments they shared and then they just lose all connection because they're working in a hospital system. It's, it's a large community. They never see that person again. And there's always that question on how they do. And you're in the opposite situation where you, you hear probably you go to the supermarket, you go to a church, you go anywhere in the town and somebody's probably like, oh, so-and-so did great. They wanted, you know, it's, it's such a different, different side of medicine that I don't think many people get to experience anymore these days. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but it would be hard to know that it's that person or that loved one. And I, I've taken care of friends and friends' children over the years with trauma or for accidents. And there is there is something, like you said, to that instant connection where they feel a little bit more comfortable because you know them. And as the surgeon, it's always a little trickier on my side because I know them. So it's I try to, you know, like it's it's important to be objective when you're taking care of people. And it's a little harder for me to be objective when I know the person. So on their side, they're feeling more comfort. On my side, I'm trying to struggle through disconnecting so I can care for them in the best way possible. Right. <laughs> so it, it's really hard to inject a little boy with lidocaine for stitches that you know personally. And you see him cry and you know it's the best thing to put the stitches in, but you know it's painful. It's, it's hard when there's... it's harder when you know the person it's easier when there's that disconnect but then on the flip side we don't see these people day in day out that i take care of and i'm missing that aspect of medicine too how are they doing what's their life like was it 
you know, how, you know, I, I don't know how to explain it, but well, also that little boy, every time you see him from then on, I was like, that's that guy that gave me a shot, you know, <laughs> he, he, he hurt me. <laughs> yeah, that guy hurt me. But, I mean, I gave him a little laughing gas. I don't think he, <laughs> I'm not sure how well he remembers the situation. <laughs> but yeah, that's just a unique situation that you're in, knowing these people, caring for these people, having it be your job to fly, but then also on your time that you could be spending with your family, you're in the truck taking care of people as an EMT. That's yeah. impressive. That's one thing about healthcare workers that I don't think a lot of people realize is the amount of time that we donate to other people that's not our families. Our families definitely feel that, but at the same time, the reward that we get out of it is worth it. Yeah, I agree. That's true. Now, any like we've kind of done some like massive trauma, some intense situations. What about just pure like silly or strange where you just ended up on the scene and you just it was like just laughing or ended just... up just laughing. I mean, <laughs> the smell story was pretty humorous, but <laughs> anything else come to mind? Yeah. Uh, a couple winters back, we got called for a search and rescue op where uh, there was a, a father and son snowmobiling and they, they didn't return home. Uh, so the wife got nervous, called 911, um, knew the general area, right? But didn't know any more than that. So, uh, we got dispatched to help go look for them. Um, and after several hours of searching the area, we ended up finding them uh, due to a pen light that they had. They'd been, they had started a fire. And then as the fire uh, had gone out late at night, they're like, well, the only way to stay warm is we need to start hiking back. So they both had, there were two snowmobiles and uh, one of them, it was, this was snowmobiling in the late, late winter, early springtime. So the snow was really soft, really slushy. Mm -hmm. And, and I think they hit a, a really wet patch and one of the snowmobiles started to slide off of a ravine. So the guy jumped and the snowmobile continued to tumble off, went pretty down. So he was safe. Okay. But the snowmobile was there and they're like, Oh, you know, we need to get out of here. So let's double up on this other snow machine. They started coming out, but because of how slushy the snow was and two riders on, on the sled rather than one, they ended up getting into a position where it had burned something out on the machine and they and it died on them. They could no longer ride it out. And they were pretty far back. I think it was around like 20 to 30 miles away from the trailhead where they had started, right? It's, it was a ways. Uh, so after several hours of searching, we found them. They were unharmed, perfectly okay, which was great. Like, awesome. We picked them up. We put them in the helicopter and we flew them back to their truck where there were police waiting for them to question them, make sure everything was okay. And uh, that was it. That was That was what we heard. We're like, great. Awesome job. Well done. Everyone left happy and healthy. Those are the ones we like. It was exactly a week to that day. We got called for another search and rescue in the exact same area. And there was just one tiny little blip at the bottom of it saying, uh, look for them in the same place you looked last time. And I went, wait, what? It was the same gentleman. He went back to try to rescue his snow machine with a friend and they both got stuck again. And so we came in, we landed, they were there with a fire. They knew that we knew where they were. So they were just waiting. They're like, we're really sorry to call you, but we got stuck again. And I'm like, man, I think you just need to sell that snow machine. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Everyone was happy, healthy, and it was, it was a good outcome. Uh, he actually ended up putting a, a little blurb in the paper because they did an interview on him. And he's like, don't be afraid to call even when you feel really stupid. Sometimes these things happen and they're very nice and they're willing to take care of you. 
and it was it i just chuckled because it was the exact same guy i mean the same outfit it was like deja vu you know <laughs> sitting there waiting he's like i knew you'd come find me and that you knew where i was at <laughs> oh my gosh his wife must have been like are you kidding me yeah that's but- one of those where she's like I'm going to put this on Craigslist right now. So <laughs> you need to be done. Yeah. Well, that's a good life lesson. Like that, what that guy said, where it's just like, don't be afraid to ask for help. Even if you feel like an idiot for asking, whether it's yeah. health care or other reasons in your life, sometimes you're just, you know, you make a mistake. It's just time to ask for help. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> there was one other funny call that, that comes to mind now that I'm thinking about it. Um, we got called to, this was another vehicle, well, it was semi versus pedestrian is what it was called to on the freeway. And, you know, you immediately, all the red flags raised, like, this sounds horrible. And so we all ran out, we took off, we got going, and uh, we, we started getting updates right away from the ambulance on scene saying, you know, he's coherent, he's talking. Things are good because they were questioning whether they needed the helicopter. And then there was a somebody stepped in and said, no, there's a severe enough trauma that we need to have them here. Like, okay, so we came in again. The freeway was shut down. And here's one individual in the median between the freeway. And there's a semi truck up the road stopped. Right. I'm like, how did this happen? Because they they were nowhere near any towns or even off ramps for that matter. And I'm like, where did this guy come from? And as we approached him. He he looked like he'd probably been hitchhiking, you know, just kind of really worn, ragged. And he was out there just happy as can be asking if if we knew his, you know, his buddy, John. And, oh, I know you. Your name's James. And I'm like, oh, maybe this guy's on something. Well, wh- we finally got the story out of him out of a long time of trying to question him because he was complaining about how his leg hurt. Well, his leg was in the wrong position for for the way it was supposed to. And so finally what had happened was, is while the, the, the med crew was taking care of him, I walked over and was talking to the, the deputy and the semi driver was right there. And I'm like, so what exactly happened? He goes, I was driving down the road and I saw him hitchhiking on the side of the road. And as I passed, I just happened to look out of the corner of my eye in my rear view mirror. And I saw him tumble into the road or into the median. I'm like, that's really strange. I go, was it windy? Like where you swerve? He's like, no, no, nothing. And so I, I brought that story to the med crew. And so they were questioning him and the guy was out of his mind enough that he was angry and yelling at cars as they were driving by, cause they were being too loud. And he'd turn and kicked at the, the semi as it had passed. And the momentum of the truck versus his kick had just like tossed him like a rag doll. And he, I mean, he had self-medicated himself at that point, you know, cause he was not under a very large amount of pain other than, and uh, was happy to see us. So we loaded him in the helicopter and flew him back. And <laughs> just like, you know, there was a silver lining to your to your addiction at that point, I guess. And, wow. And his leg was broken, dislocated. It, it was it was broken. Definitely broken. Okay. Wow. But just kicking kick a semi truck on. Yep. Kicking kick a semi truck on the side of the highway and injuring yeah. yourself. Yeah. All right, kids, don't kick semi trucks. <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah that's that's the thing I, I i love medicine because of those stories just i mean when else are you going to talk to a guy that just kicked a semi truck never i mean this, this is the okay. only career in the world where you get to hear those stories you get to interact with those people 
I love the diversity of people we get to interact with as well. You you can live where you live. You can like have your neighbors. You can have your friends. You kind of get set in a way of life. And then in medicine, you get to meet people from all walks of life, like people lower socioeconomic status, higher socioeconomic status. Everybody gets injured. Everybody gets sick. It's kind of the cross section of humanity is ambulance, hospital, all of that. So it's just, you know, they call America the melting pot, but you know, it's the hospital, it's the ambulance, it's the true melting pot of the world. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Well, Chesley, thank you for sharing your stories with us. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you volunteering your time to do the e- EMT stuff and to fly. That's a really cool career. And also it's really uh, amazing of you to donate your time. Thank you. Yeah, definitely my pleasure. Hi, this is Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, and share this episode so that we can continue to get you more stories in the future.